Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. historic Apollo 8 mission, astronauts for the first time have left Earth's orbit and are circling the moon. And I just can't help but wonder what I would have done if I were uh, Bill or Jim or Frank on that ship, if what I would have done with that platform and in that moment to be the first men outside of Earth's orbit, seeing the other side of the moon and talking back to the planet that I just left and what they do with that platform and in that historic moment is they pull out a book that they packed and that in and of itself is amazing because in an environment and in an idea where you would have to weigh everything that you take and you'd have to bring it into a room and weigh the pros and cons of bringing that item and they're not going to have any wasted things on this ship they have purposely packed a Bible. And in their biggest platform in their life, pull out that Bible and read the Genesis creation account and say a prayer for the planet and for us as human beings. And now many, many years later, the idea of a God and creation seems like a far-fetched leap of faith. And we're constantly bombarded with different ideas and views claiming to have the answers to life's biggest questions. And it's, it's tough, it's tough to find satisfying answers and we end up asking, could we ever know the truth? 
Does it all just come down to a far-fetched leap of faith? So that's the idea of this series is we're going to tackle six big questions over the next six weeks. And uh, the first one is this week, is God real? Uh, Next week, is Noah and the flood true? I'm excited about that message. I've actually asked for help with this series because I'm not smart enough to cover all these. And so I've asked um, Andrew uh, to come and, and preach uh, that week, and you're gonna, uh, whatever I know about the flood, I learned from him anyway, so you're just gonna love, love his message. He's got a great, uh, great thing planned for us next week. You're gonna love that. And then the week after that is God good, and then is Jesus alive? Did the resurrection really happen? Like, how do we know it happened? And I've asked Zach Sherwood uh, to preach on that one, uh, because again, I've learned so much from him about Uh, the case for the resurrection, and you're going to love his message. And then is there life after death? How do we know that? How do we we live that way? How do we know there's life after death? And is the Bible believable, which is uh, something we've talked a lot about here at Rockbrook. I've kind of got a fresh approach for that week that I'm excited about and looking forward to. And, and I, hate, I hate to do this. I hate to spoil the answer to all of those questions, but I don't think it's going to be a surprise to you that we believe the answer is yes to every single one of those. And it's not like a timid yes. It's not an embarrassed yes. It's not a reluctant yes. It's a confident yes. You can have remarkable confidence in a believable God. It's a real yes. It's us. Bet the farm, burn the ships, stake your life on it, yes. Why? Why is it that kind of yes? Well, one reason is we believe these things on faith. Okay, Hebrews 11.6 on the screen says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that's true. So we believe these things on faith, but that doesn't mean it's not reasoned. That doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean there's not evidence for that faith. And, and what many people believe is that, that those who believe those things, they just came to the edge and closed their eyes and just took a far-fetched leap of faith to believe those things. No, it's, it's reasoned. It's real. It's not some far-fetched leap of faith, and it's not as far-fetched as you might think. So thank you so much for joining us for this series. Um, I hope you find it beneficial as we talk about these things, and we'll put these messages online, and we'll put them on our podcast channel, and we'll, we turn them into uh, blogs, like short blogs, if you want to read over it or skim over it again, or uh, maybe you uh, find that engaging. We'll create talk-it-over notes, so you could talk about it with a small group or your family or another person, and there might be some more insights in there that might help you, but this is a great place to discover the claims of Jesus. So I recognize that not everyone in here this morning is a committed Jesus follower. And if you're not a committed Jesus follower, this is, you're more than welcome at Rockbrook Church. And this is a great place for you to discover what we believe and then take the next steps that you wanna take. But here's what I know is going to happen for all of us in this series, is that we're gonna press up against some paradigms and ways of thinking and assumptions that we have. And when we press up against those assumptions that we have, there's gonna be a tendency in all of us to say, well, that's not true. Or that's not the way I've always known it. Or that's not what I was told before. 
And I would just encourage you to do something that maybe you've never done in your life or you haven't done in a long time, and that is hear it out and then investigate it and, and decide what you believe, but not just immediately push back against it. And before some of the Christians in the room say, yeah, Pastor Ryland, go after the skeptics, go after the doubters, you need to know I'm coming after you too. Because just because we believe in Jesus doesn't mean every assumption we have is right. Just because we believe in Jesus doesn't mean everything we believe about God and about history is true. And part of the human condition and who we are as people is we want to base our beliefs around what we feel. And if you're taking notes, write that in. Many people in our culture shape their beliefs around how they feel. So they have a certain way that they feel or a certain way that they desire they want to live and how they feel it should be. And, and we, we shape our beliefs, we build our beliefs around how we feel rather than finding out what's true and basing our beliefs around what's true. We end up building a belief system around how we feel or how we desire the way we want to live. And we see that all the time. I'll just give you an extreme example. I give you this one because um, I, I think almost everyone in this room could probably relate to this example. But an extreme example about shaping our beliefs around what we feel is have you ever known someone with a great addiction? Someone with a great addiction. In the midst of that addiction, what does someone with a great addiction do? They build a belief system around how they feel to justify the way they're living. They say, well, I'm not really hurting anyone else. Who are they to judge me? Why are you invading my privacy? And they create a belief system to justify the thing that they don't even really like in the first place. Like at the end of the day, we know that that's not true, but yet we, we still do it and we all do it to some degree. That's an extreme example, but you and I both do that to some degree, big or small. And we create a belief system that makes it okay to live the way we're living. But we know that's not helpful to us and we know when we go to, the bed, to bed at night, at the end of the day, when we go to bed at night, at the end of the day, we know this isn't real. That's not the truth. So shape your beliefs around what's real. Let's not be people who shape our beliefs around what we feel. Because let me ask you a question. Have your feelings ever been wrong? <laughs> yeah, just think back to that person you dated in high school. And you see them years later and it's like, whoa. <laughs> My feelings were wrong. <laughs> and if you say, well, I've never thought that before. Well, that's what people think about you. <laughs> if you're new to Rockbrook, we do not take ourselves seriously, okay? So, in fact, we say we take God seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. We're not afraid of a little bit of humor. But a lot of people, so it's okay to have fun here today. A lot of people have this flipped and they're shaping their beliefs around how they feel, not what's real. But the most rational people wanna build their life around what is real. They know there's truth and they wanna build their life around what is real. So I would encourage every one of us here today to follow the evidence, to follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. 
Follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. Now, this is very difficult to do. This is very difficult because we all have a bias. We all have a way we hope it turns out. We all have something that we hope the evidence testifies to. And I wanna show you a video about following the evidence. Five o'clock after a long day studying. So what I come home to, trash has been gone through. It's my fault, I left it, or I, I left it kind of full. So my question is, who, who did it? Who's the culprit? We got a couple options. Let's see. We got Gib, and we got Xena. What about Tank? <laughs> I wonder if Tank had anything to do with it. Tank, do you know about the trash? Now, I think it was Tank. But here's what I could do. I could come up with a bias that I don't want it to be Tank. Tank's been getting in trouble a lot lately. I don't want it to be Tank. And I could say, it's one of the other dogs, and Tank got framed. <laughs> or I could, if I put my mind to it, I could come up with about a dozen different theories and conspiracy theories of how that trash can ended up on Tank's head. But at the end of the day, I'm going to know that the evidence says Tank likes to get into the trash and Tank's in the corner looking rather guilty with a trash can lid on his head and I'm going to know where the evidence leads. <laughs> so what does the evidence say about the existence of God? Is God real? What does the evidence point to? Well, there's a few different choices before us. The atheist uh, says, is God real? No. And the atheist considers all concepts of God just human inventions, uh, the definition of an atheist is one who believes that God does not exist. But then there's the agnostic. The agnostic says, maybe. The agnostic says, I don't know, so I'm gonna investigate it. Many agnostics say, no one could ever know, so I choose not to believe anything. And then the advocate says, yes. The advocate says, God is yes, God is real. That doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian, but they, they advocate that God is real. And that's what they believe. But let me point out something to you today, and you may want to add this to your outline, that all three of these are a belief system. So even the person who says God does not exist, they believe God does not exist. It's a belief system. The person who says, I don't believe in anything, that's a belief system. Like, okay, so theism, the idea that there's a God, atheism, atheist, the theist and the atheist, when they have an argument and walk away, it's not like one walks away with a belief system and one walks away without one. One walks away believing there's a God and one walks away believing there's not a God. It's still all a belief system. You're going you're gonna to give your life to something. You can't get away from that. You're gonna believe something in your life. You can't get away from that. They're all a belief system. I believe God exists. I believe God is real. Why? Uh, because the evidence says he does. That's what's real. The evidence says there's a God. There's a creator. Now, I'll be honest with you today. If you're, if you're new with us at Rockbrook, you'll find that I shoot straight with you. And because I have found that a lot of preachers, and I love pastors, I love, I love preachers, but I've found that a lot of preachers 
have like the stuff that keeps them going, that they use, but then different stuff they bring to church. So it's like the stuff that helps them and keeps their fire burning and keeps it clear for them, but then like different things that they talk to the church about it. I try to make it all one thing. So why do I believe God exists? And, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I feel like God does not exist. Sometimes I feel like I cannot connect with him. There are times when I struggle. There are times when I feel like he told me something or led me in some way to do something, but later I'm not sure. And there are times I'm disappointed because he didn't answer a prayer the way I wanted him to. And there are times I wrestle with other things. But in the midst of those feelings, intellectually, when I really think things through, can I ever come to the place in my darkest moment where I say God does not exist. I can't. Even in the, in the darkest moment, can I get to a place where I believe God does not exist? Folks, I can't even get there even if I try. I can't get there even when I try. Why? Why? Well, I'm gonna give you uh, some reasons personally that I connect with the most that I believe God exists. And one of them is, is actually the Bible. Um, this is an amazing book. It's a reliable book. It's historically accurate. It's archaeologically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. It's prophetically accurate. It's thematically unified. Th this is a trustworthy book. But we're going to do a, a whole week on the Bible, so I don't want to talk about that today. And another reason is the resurrection, that Jesus actually got up from that grave. And it's clear evidence that there is a God, but we're going to do a whole week on the resurrection, so I don't want to talk about that. On top of those two things, there are about two dozen arguments for the existence of God. So if you were to look up arguments for the existence of God, uh, based on how that panel organizes it or categorizes it or what they do, how they put that together, uh, there's about two dozen arguments for the existence of God, scientific and philosophical arguments. And I wanna uh, give you three of them today, three that I connect with the most. Now these may not ring your bell. These may not do it for you. You may wanna go look up the other arguments and say, no, those are the things that I'm gonna come back to. I'm just giving you what I come back to in those dark moments that even when I try, I can't walk away and say there is no God. So I'm gonna give you two of them, and I'm going to really preach on a third one, okay? So lean into this. Let's grab this together. Number one, the evidence from the universe. This is called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. The cosmological argument, not to be confused with cosmetology. <laughs> Good hair is important, but that's not what we're talking about here. The cosmological argument says that every effect must have a cause. Every effect must have a cause, now, for a long time, the prevailing thought was that the universe always just was. Then a scientist um, by the name of Hubble came along and said, no, there's actually a beginning to the universe. So the prevailing thought, guys, for a long time was that the universe just always existed, that it was always there. And that was the cause and where the effect and what we see around us is the effect. 
Uh, Hubble came along and he's who we've named the Hubble telescope for that takes pictures of deep space. And he was the first scientist to really put pen to paper and study the stars and to study the movements and present a theory that says, it shows like scientific data shows there was a birthday that this thing actually began and expanded and it's still expanding. And he says the universe is expanding, not like galaxies and solar systems are expanding, but the universe is actually expanding. Into what? I don't know. (laughs) But what's interesting is the Christian community, the religious community is not the people that pushed back on his theory that he brought the facts and he says the universe had a birthday, it had a beginning. And the religious community said, oh, the, the universe has a beginning? Welcome to the party. <laughs> and then he said, actually, the energy that propels the universe in motion is waning and it has an ending. And the religious community says, oh, all this comes to an end one day, welcome to the party. And it was actually the scientific community that that pushed back on him because the universe having a beginning and ending presented a lot of problems for them. And now that theory has morphed into what's called the Big Bang Theory as they've been able to counteract certain arguments that they wanted to counteract. But what we've seen, so we've learned more in the last 100 years about the universe than the last 1,000 years before that. And what we're learning at this rapid, rapid rate, the evidence points more and more to there being a creator, there being a beginning. Why? Because not everything can come from nothing. Everything does not come from nothing. And that's the cosmological argument, the evidence from the universe in a nutshell, that nothing or something never comes from nothing. Something has to come from something. Everything has a cause. You can't say everything comes from nothing. Something always comes from something. So the clothes that you're wearing right now, like that's evidence that someone designed those and made those. Those did not just come from nothing. Someone designed them and figured out a way to manufacture them. That's evidence of a creator of these clothes. And what we see around us, because we see matter, that's evidence that that has to come from something. Everything has a cause. So the evidence of the universe, the cosmological argument, this takes this all the way back to the question of where did the first cell come from? This is a question of origin. If you wanna have a correct worldview, you have to answer the question of origin. And it is just amazing how so many people just decide not to care about origin. You can't not care about origin. In fact, there's many religions that don't even talk about origin. That God explains, Christianity explains where the first cell came from, where the first thing of existence came from, where the first matter came from. This is what the Bible addresses. Christianity has an answer for origin, has an answer for how existence began, and it's not so far-fetched. And as we discover more and more, we discover it must be a creator. Now, in the first century, the Apostle Paul, a Jesus follower, put it this way. He said, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. 
So they have no excuse for not knowing God. What's Paul saying? He's saying God exists and anyone who's ever seen the world already knows that. God exists and anyone who's ever seen anything already knows that. Here's another reason why I believe God is real, the evidence from design. This is what's called the teleological argument. And that is that what we see in creation is that it's ordered, it's designed. What we're learning about our world and living organisms and ourselves at the DNA level is just absolutely incredible. The leading scientist who mapped out the human genome for the first time was a guy by the name of Francis Collins and he wrote a book called The Language of God. And he says if you took a single cell amoeba and just took the DNA out of that single cell, so this is not anything as complex as you and I, we're talking about a single cell amoeba, and mapped out the DNA from that cell, that there's enough information in that DNA code to fill 30 encyclopedias worth of information. That's how complex living organisms are. That doesn't just happen. That doesn't just randomly come together. It's not so far-fetched to believe that there is something, there is someone who is an intelligent designer. There is someone who is an intelligent designer who did that within us, but also designed a place in the universe to sustain life. So we're called, uh, we're in what's called the Goldilocks zone that means that it's like we can sustain life here. And even our planet, like if it were to move one degree, we'd either burn up or freeze. Like everything is just perfectly orchestrated and finely tuned to sustain life. It's called the Goldilocks zone because it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. And what we've learned from the universe is that doesn't just happen. It's finely tuned. God orchestrated it. A creator designed it that way. I think the crew from Apollo 8 that that Apollo 8 mission where they're circling the moon, isn't that just an amazing testimony of fine-tuning? That there, there are fine-tuned laws that you can count on and they're consistent. And they, that crew didn't just float off into space. Why? Because they could count on laws from the universe. They could count on gravity. It's not like gravity would ever just stop working or that they'd miss it. They could put pen to paper and calculate and chart a mission based on things revolving around one another and things being finely tuned, fine, fine tuning. Psalm 19, one through four says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. This is what the writer of, of this psalm is saying. He's saying that creation's voice is so, it's louder than an audible voice. Like we want an audible voice. We want a sign that says there's a God. It's already there. It's louder than an audible voice. He's saying, look around. The voice pours forth day and night. 
that things are finely tuned and they're designed and creation's voice goes out and evidence points to a designer, a creator. Now let me give you number three and this is the one I wanna spend a little bit more time on and that is the evidence for morality. This is the moral argument, the dignity of humanity. We refer to it as human rights, inerrant worth. This idea that every person just by virtue of being person has inerrant worth and value, that it can't be trampled upon and it shouldn't be violated. And this just doesn't make sense without God. In terms of facts, let me tell you a fact. Everyone in here in this room today believes that. Everyone in here believes that just by virtue of being human, you have human dignity, that you have inerrant worth. How did we come all to just believe that? That's a phenomenon that has to be explained. How did we all come to believe, okay, even if you don't always live by it, how did we all come to believe that every person has worth just by virtue of being human. How did that happen? How do you explain that? We think that idea has always been around, but ideas don't work like that. They have to come from somewhere. And what's amazing is there's zero debate. Like even from what religion you believe, just anyone who has any knowledge of history, the idea of human worth and dignity came from scripture, came from the Bible. And they've tried to find it in another source and it just isn't there. Not only human rights, but in this country, we call them civil rights, civil rights. And the civil rights movement is based in the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. It comes from Genesis 1:27. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And there's no place to find human rights before the Bible. And if you wanna say there is no God, and you wanna say the Genesis account isn't true, and that God didn't create the world, then you have to come up with a basis for human dignity. Like that, that's a contradiction you can't just leave on the table. You have to come up with a basis for why we have human dignity. This is why Abraham Lincoln, for 10 years, was pounding his fist on five words from the Declaration of Independence that said all men are created equal. And he would say the word created is not just there to sound pretty. If you take out the word created, so what? You have no argument. All men are equal. Who says? Why? Why men are, are all men equal? Like what, what is your argument? Why is genocide wrong? Well, because it makes me feel bad. That's not an argument. Why, why is murder wrong? Well, because I don't like it. No, that's not an argument. Why, why is it wrong? And the sentence doesn't make any sense without that word until you say they're endowed by their creator. And once you put that back in, now you have an argument. You cannot explain it without a creator. You cannot explain it without God. You can't make sense of what is in us without God. And the Genesis account explains the data and explains right and wrong better than any other story. I'll give you another illustration. You don't like robbery, right? I don't like it when people take my stuff. And one of the reasons I don't like it is because I know it's wrong and the person who took my stuff knows it's wrong. And maybe I've never met them, and I don't know them, but I know they know it's wrong. How do I know I know that they know that it's wrong? Because everybody knows that. 
How does everybody know that? Well, it's human dignity. It's moral law. Everyone just knows that. No, how do they know that? God put right and wrong in us. He designed it. He stitched it into us. And there's some things that we just don't appreciate in life. We don't like murder. We don't think murder is okay. But the people who think murder is okay and they think genocide is okay, what do we call them? We call them wicked. We call them sociopaths. Why? Because their construct, their moral construct is not connecting with what we know as human beings. And this is what makes us different than animals. And this is why evolutionary theory does not have a good explanation for morality. Because if there's such a thing as morals, there's got to be a moral lawgiver. And even those who have never heard the Bible and they're unengaged and they're uncivilized and they don't know about the Ten Commandments and they don't know about God and they don't know about civility and civil rights and human rights, they know murder is wrong. They know robbery is wrong. How did we all just come to know that God stitched it in our heart and mind? Recently, I was driving um, in a place in Kansas City that I hadn't driven in a while on a highway and uh, traffic was starting to get backed up. So I went into this open lane and then quickly realized that that lane was ending and that's why it was open. And so now all these people think like I'm cutting in line and they're getting upset, which I think, why don't we just all Never mind. So, like, go down to the, all right, this isn't driving lessons by Ryland Walter. Anyway, but they all start getting upset that I'm cutting in line, and I'm getting the bird, and I'm getting yelled at, and honked at, and everything, and I'm thinking, how did all these hundreds of cars who haven't talked to each other, how did they all just decide that it was wrong for me to cut in line? How does that happen. That doesn't just happen if there isn't some moral law given to us by human beings. What, just all of the sudden everyone agrees with the same precepts? That doesn't just happen. And this is where evolutionary thinking falls apart. They say that our thinking came from decisions that we made when we were animals and now we're just the highest form of animals. What decisions we made as animals? Like when a cheetah kills a giraffe, we don't call that murder. When a shark forcefully copulates with another shark, we don't call that rape. And so if we're just the highest form of animal, when did it tip over and now that's murder and now that's rape? That, that, that doesn't just happen. Like even in the own evolutionary community's thinking, that can't happen. Because if our species is supposed to be just the most advanced animal, where did we come up with the idea now of right and wrong? Where did we come up with that moral attribute? If it's from evolution, it's all just an illusion. It's not real. And this is where it falls apart. But in evolutionary thinking, well, then I could just say, well, I'm just going to sleep with whoever I want. That's not, it's not wrong. And I'm just going to sleep with whoever I want because I want to spread my seed in the next generation. No, you would say, Ryland, that is decisively what? Wrong. But you can't tell me that if all our morality only developed through evolutionary development. You would never come to that conclusion. And so the thing that you hate, 
And I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's something I've already mentioned. Maybe you hate racism or genocide or drugs. Maybe you hate rape or murder, but that thing that you hate, you wouldn't even have a category to hate that thing if there's no God. It would just be an illusion. And we'd never even get that category in our mind if morality was a conclusion of nature. Genocide wouldn't be a bad thing, just be nature, be the strong eliminating the weak. And that's exactly the belief and the thought that fueled the Holocaust. There's a reason we're repulsed by it, but you'd never be repulsed by that thing if your morality was a product of nature. There's gotta be something else beyond nature that tells you what's wrong. Tim Keller says it this way, He said, how could that trait, so that trait of right and wrong, come down by a process of natural selection? Such people would have been less likely to survive and pass on their genes. So if there was that feeling of right and wrong, if there was that compassion and those things, that that they wouldn't make it, they would be eliminated. There is some supernatural standard of normalcy apart from nature by which we can judge right and wrong. There's something aside from nature, something that came in and said, you don't get to decide just based on nature, what's right and wrong. If mankind, this is what it all comes down to, if you want it in a sentence, here's what this argument comes down to. If mankind is only a biological creature, why does he have a sense of moral obligation? Theism gives us the answer, God gives us the answer, that we have an inner moral witness placed there by God and God stitched it in you and theism comes along and explains that we were made in the image of God. The Apostle Paul says it this way in the New Testament, he said, when outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, so they've never heard it, but they still know it, They, they still follow it based on instinct, they they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien, opposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There's something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. And their response to God's yes and no will become public knowledge on the day God makes his final decision about every man and every woman. These are rational explanations as to why we have morals. And the idea that these morals just evolved, I'm sorry, that's a far-fetched leap of faith. And I don't, I don't mean to offend anyone with that. It, it's just far-fetched. But as you study it, you find that God created them. And God, created them is not, God creating them is not so far-fetched. And you have inerrant worth because you were created in the image of God. So see, now that we've built our our belief system around what's real, now we can have a feeling. And you know what that feeling is? It's amazing. It's a feeling of worth. I think God brought someone to church today to be reminded that you are worth something, that you're worth it, you're valuable, you have an errant worth, you have human dignity, that God loves you, God cares for you, God created you, and he not only created you, he created you in his image, and he stitched into the fabric of your heart and your mind the image of himself. And that's why the Christian faith, at its core, is not just about believing something, 
It's about knowing someone. I'll say that again. Christianity is not about believing something. It's about knowing someone. And so this, this series today that we're starting today, the goal of this series is not just to get you to believe something. It's to introduce you to someone. And I hope you'll keep coming back because God wants to be found. I put Hebrews 11.6 up on the screen at the beginning of the sermon. There's more to it. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. So yes, we must believe something. But there's more. There's a big and there and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And if you earnestly seek God, you will be rewarded. You will find God. God wants to be found. And you will be rewarded by finding God himself. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this opportunity to explore our faith. Thank you for a church that allows us to do that. God, we want to be strong in our faith. God, help us lean in and discover what's real because we we want to be strong in our faith. And God, we don't want to just believe something. We don't want to just know the facts. We want to know you. And God, we want to earnestly seek you. So God, I pray for everyone in the church today. I pray your grace and goodness will go with them from this place. And that we'll all find you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.